Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Listen, before we start the show today, a quick note. Thanks to you, the ongoing history of new music podcast has been racing up the podcast charts, and we've been receiving a bunch of email and direct messages from fans of the show that you wanted to hear more episodes. Okay, done. We've heard you. And we're happy to do just that. So we're ramping things up around here. You will now get an additional ongoing History of New Music podcast every week all summer long. So that's two shows for the price of, well, none. So get it. I mean, show is free. Okay, wait. Also enjoy this week's episode. Here we go. For decades, the attitude was that if you recorded for an independent label, you were in the minor leagues. After all, if you were any good or you made music that the masses were likely to enjoy, you'd have been picked up by a major label, right? The world of indie rock, which itself was a subset within the already left-of-center alternative rock scene, was a place to put all the extra weird misfits or those whose talent was uh, questioned. Totally unfair. Mostly. Yeah, there were plenty of dregs when it came to indie rock, but this is also the universe where people took chances, and every once in a while, something great inevitably happened. A new sound, a new trend, a new band, or even just a new song. And when things got weird with the music establishment in the era of music piracy and illegal downloads, it was the indie world that was forced to step up and figure out what everybody needed to do. This is part four of our history of indie rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hi there, and welcome to our fourth and final episode in a series documenting the history of indie rock. I'm Alan Cross, and I want to begin this segment with the idea of the indie world being the breeding ground for what's next. There were several essential alt-rock movements, or sounds, or trends, or whatever you want to call them, that could not have happened without indie artists and indie labels. We've already covered grunge on a previous program, so let's talk about Manchester. There was a period in the late 80s and early 90s when the most exciting new rock in the UK was coming out of that northern English city. There wasn't so much of a scene or sound, that was actually the invention of the British music press, but there was a sudden interest in several new bands from Manchester, all of whom recorded for independent labels. The Holy Trinity was the Inspiral Carpets on the roster of Mute Records, the Happy Mondays, part of Factory Records, and the Stone Roses, who were signed to Silvertone Records. Each band sounded very different from each other, yet came out of the gate with some really strong, really fresh-sounding songs. Of these three, I think you can say that the Stone Roses burned the brightest. After a couple of singles, they released a self-titled debut album on May 2nd, 1989, and this record was astounding. A year later, May 27th, 1990, the Roses headlined an outdoor festival on a strip of once heavily polluted land called Spike Island. Twelve months earlier, they were struggling to get 30 people to show up to a bar gig. This time, though, 30,000 people turned up, paying about 14 quid to get in. This had never happened before. That many fans showing up to see an indie band? What's going on here? (laughs) 
Manchester burnt itself out after a couple of years, especially after the Stone Roses got trapped in what seemed like a bottomless legal quagmire with their record label. Tough for them, but that just led into the next scene, which is Britpop. Inspired equally by Manchester and great British bands of the past, like the Beatles and the Kinks and the Mods, this new crop of young bands began sending demo tapes to independent labels. A bunch of precocious university students stopped listening to their Bowie, Roxy Music, and Smiths records long enough to form a group called Suede. A couple of gigs brought them next big thing status, and eventually they became the first unsigned band to appear on the cover of a British music paper. They eventually signed with an indie label called Nude for exactly 3,132 pounds. Then there was a group called Seymour, who attracted the attention of an indie label called Food. They convinced them to change their name to Blur, and by 1994, they were one of the most important new bands in the UK. And then there were a bunch of yabos from Manchester who bullied their way on stage at a venue called King Tut's Wawa Hut in Glasgow. That was May 31st, 1993. They played four songs, and in the audience that night was Alan McGee, the head of Creation Records. He got to the venue at the wrong time, earlier than he had intended, because there was a mix-up in set times. Instead of seeing the band he wanted to see, he got Oasis. All it took, though, was those four songs. He offered them a deal with Creation, an indie label, and we all know how that turned out, right? Within two years, Oasis was not just the biggest band in the UK, but one of the biggest bands in the world. Here's one of the songs they played that night in Glasgow. In fact, they opened their set with it. Oasis, back to the Definitely Maybe album. They were an indie band then, recording for Creation Labels. Another area that got a big boost from indie artists was the mid-90s punk rock revival in North America. By 1995, but with a few exceptions, grunge had largely come under the control of the majors. In fact, having discovered that this thing called alternative music had existed under their nose for decades, the majors were all over it. The trail led to some new punk rock that was being made, especially in California, and it just made sense to start scouring the indie labels that had been nurturing this stuff for years. In late 1993, the band that founded their own label, Epitaph Records, in 1980, were themselves persuaded to release their next album on a major, Atlantic Records, who were part of Warner. Then, in February 1994, Warner released Green Day's Dookie album after being tipped off to the band's first two releases on an indie called Lookout Records. But then there's The Offspring. After two indie albums, they released a third indie record on April 8, 1994. It exploded, selling no fewer than 11 million copies around the world. Not only was this a punk band, but this was an indie punk band and it was a tremendously successful indie punk band. What the hell was going on here? Offspring, back when they were a pure indie band recording for Epitaph Records. They were a major, major part of the mid-90s punk rock revival. 
By 1996, the boom in alt-rock had run its course, and the world slipped into an era where pop music ruled. Left in its place was a string of one-hit wonders, the polarizing sound of new metal, and the rise of electronica. And it honestly looked pretty grim for guitar rock in general back then. And then to exacerbate things, the internet came along with its file sharing and illegal downloading. It was like some kind of mass extinction event. But indie rock survived. In fact, it brought everything back. If you were around in the late 90s and early 2000s, you'll remember how tough it was being a rock fan. Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Spice Girls, Britney Spears, hip-hop and dance music and electronica were so big that at one point turntables were outselling guitars. Maybe it was time to strip things back to basics and start again. But how? Turns out there was an indie band in New York made up of some trust fund kids who were getting the hipsters all in a lather, and with good reason. They'd been knocking around the Lower East Side starting in 1998, eventually working up a set of about a dozen songs. Nobody in the U.S. was interested in releasing their stuff, so they sent a demo to Rough Trade Records in the U.K., who agreed to release an EP called The Modern Age. When it came out on January 29, 2001, Rough Trade struggled to maintain a supply to the shops. Meanwhile, a bidding war broke out amongst North American labels. In fact, this was the biggest and most fierce bidding war that we'd seen for a rock band in a long, long time. The eventual result was a debut album called This Is It in October 2001. That pretty much set the table for the indie rock revolution that was about to churn through the first decade of the 21st century. Rock needed a shot in the arm, and once again, it was the indie world that provided it. After the Strokes started getting press and chart numbers and radio airplay, the tide started to lift all indie boats. Just like we saw 10 years earlier in the budding days of grunge, everyone started to look at this parallel universe of independent acts and labels. What other good stuff was lurking below the surface? Well, the White Stripes, for one. Jack and Meg White first started hacking about in 1997 and releasing singles in 1998. They used a variety of indie labels whoever would have them, basically. There was Italy Records, Extra Ball, GMF, Sympathy for the Record Industry. And it was that last label, a company from Olympia, Washington, run by a guy called Long Gone John, that had been dedicated to garage rock and punk since 1988. Things took off with them. The third White Stripes album for the label sold a million copies in the U.S. and another million globally. And as we saw with The Strokes, there was this public hunger for stripped-down, back-to-basics rock with this street-level veneer of authenticity. I bought my first White Stripes record at the original Rough Trade store in Notting Hill, London. I walked into the store, asked for what all the cool kids were buying, and the guy behind the counter handed me a copy of White Blood Cells. Here you go, mate, he says. Soon, everybody will be talking about this band from Detroit. He wasn't wrong. <laughs> White Stripes, three albums deep into their career before they took off. But once they did, 
they became a big, big part of the rise in popularity of indie rock in the aughts. We'll get back to Jack in just a bit. Now let's move up to Vancouver. The new pornographers came out at roughly the same time as The Strokes. Their first album, Mass Romantic, came out in November 2000 on a label called Mint. Now, Mint had been around since 1991 when a couple of campus radio guys decided they needed their own record label. Their whole goal was very much like what we saw with Sub Pop, a need to give a voice to the up-and-coming acts in the lower BC mainland. The first years were a real struggle. But then things started to pick up when one of their acts, the instrumental group Huevos Rancheros, received a Juno nomination for Best Alternative Album. And then came the new pornographers. That first record won the Alternative Juno, It was also voted up high in a variety of international year-end critics' polls, including Rolling Stone. This, obviously, gave even more attention and more momentum to what was going on in the indie universe. While the majors were being battered by file-sharing and falling market share, the indies were just bobbing and weaving, doing whatever they had to do to survive. And in the process, they gave us some pretty amazing music that caught the attention of a substantial number of people. From Vancouver, mass pornographers recording for the indie label Mint Records and advancing the cause for all indie bands in the earliest years of the 21st century. As the millennium advanced, interest in indie got even greater and business got better. In fact, if you looked at the charts from the end of 2005, you could classify all top 10 records on that chart as indie. And then it was another Canadian band that tore things wide open. That's next. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the ongoing history of new music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? As we got deeper into the first decade of the 21st century, there was a sense among a significant number of music fans that the indies were doing God's work. They were of the opinion that wrath from on high was visiting itself upon the majors for decades of sins. Overpriced CDs, one-sided record deals, disregard for artists and fans, a bunch of money-grubbing bean counters who cared about money more than music and needed to be punished. Indie labels were run by people who cared about music. That was the thinking. Now, that is misleading and unfair, but there's no denying this indie good, major bad attitude was being propagated. It didn't help the major's case when artists like Trent Reznor went rogue, releasing all kinds of music, not only as an independent, but also for free. His Year Zero album from 2007, the Ghosts 1-4 collection from 2008, and the Slip, also from 2008, were all released independently through Trent's company called the Null Corporation. And what was this band from Montreal that was suddenly being talked about everywhere? It was Arcade Fire. First they had this EP and then an album called Funeral. 
and it caught the attention of critics worldwide. Their label was an indie from Durham, North Carolina called Merge. The company was established in 1989 by two people from a band called Superchunk, and theirs was the same story that we've heard again and again. They couldn't find any major or major label subsidiary to release their music, so they just created their own company and did it themselves. It was rocky for about a dozen years, but then Arcade Fire comes along with Funeral, and things just blew up. Within a few years, they were not only one of the most talked about bands on the planet, but they were winning every single conceivable award. Junos, Grammys, Brits, the Polaris Music Prize. They quickly became festival headliners. Then they started selling at arenas on their own. Saturday Night Live let them do a post-musical guest show on NBC, and they performed and recorded with David Bowie. Everybody in U2 is a major fan. Now, they may not have sold records in the same numbers as The Offspring when they recorded for Epitaph, but then again, nobody does these days. Still, Arcade Fire is one of the best-known, most successful indie bands of the 21st century. Actually, they're one of the most successful bands, period, in the 21st century. And as we saw with The Strokes, the rising tide of Arcade Fire's fortunes brought more and more attention to the indie world as a whole. Another tireless evangelist for the indie world is Jack White. He's got his own independent venture, Third Man Records, which is based out of Nashville. This is the vehicle for not only all his material, but for dozens of other indie artists. Third Man has also done more for the vinyl resurrection than any other indie label I can think of. I mean, the company's motto is, your turntable's not dead. Third Man's history goes back to 2001, when Jack and Meg still had the White Stripes going in Detroit. The original idea was to release some early White Stripes 45s, but then it just kind of grew from there. In 2009, Third Man debuted a store in Nashville, which is the headquarters for the record label, its main store, a live venue, a recording studio, a warehouse, a photo studio. It's not in the greatest location. It's in an industrial area next to an auto repair place also near a methadone clinic and not too far from a major homeless shelter, but it serves everybody very well. Third Man has a very esoteric roster, ranging from Jack White and the White Stripes and the Tours and the Dead Weather, which are all Jack's projects, of course, to Conan O'Brien and Johnny Cash. The company has its own rolling record store, which is a truck that shows up at music festivals across the continent. So, just for fun, here is the first ever proper Third Man release. It's a 7-inch single from The Dead Weather, released on March 11, 2009. It's Hang You From The Heavens. I never know what mood you be Be my be kind of fool to me I'm walking away now One step forward back three Dead Weather property of Third Man Records, one of the coolest indie labels in existence at the moment. I want to end this whole thing with a nod towards Radiohead. They were a very major label band for the first half of their career, recording a series of ever-bigger records for EMI. But that relationship broke down, and once Radiohead's original seven-album contract was up, they vowed that they were never going to record for a major again. They were going to strike out on their own. They would be totally independent. And that's the way things have been. The biggest contribution Radiohead made to the indie world came with the In Rainbows album in 2007. 
They handled everything themselves, recording, manufacturing, distribution, and this is important, pricing. In Rainbows pioneered the tip jar approach. Here's the record. You can get various forms of it online, and you can pay anything you want for it. Oh, and there was a deluxe set that sold for some serious cash as well. Even though thousands chose to pay nothing for the record, it was reported that Radiohead ended up making more money from In Rainbows than they did from any other release in their career, and that includes OK Computer. Since then, Radiohead has been a tireless advocate for the indie existence, striking deals with independent labels in various territories around the world when it comes to putting physical product in the stores. And with each subsequent album, Radiohead has pushed the boundaries when it comes to getting their music in the hands of fans. As indie bands go, they are still one of the most important in the world. Let's go back to In Rainbows. This is Body Snatchers. Indie labels and the music they release hasn't been this important to the overall health of the music industry in decades, and their influence on the market overall has been pronounced. Larger labels have remade themselves to appear more indie, and former indie labels have been bought by majors and allowed to remain running as they were while at the same time providing greater financial security to the company. The war between major versus indie has pretty much ended. Instead, we're into an era of mutual cooperation, which is good since it's meant that more music for more bands is getting out there. And when you factor in all the artists who are trying to avoid any kind of label arrangement thanks to technology and the internet, the amount of music that we have to choose from these days has exploded. So let's end the same way we started. What is indie rock? Is it a style of music? Is it a business relationship? A certain spirit when creating art? Has it overturned the traditional music industry? Has it rescued the music industry? Has it been beneficial to artists and musicians? I think the answer to all those questions is yes. What hasn't changed, though, is the core values that run through the veins of every indie artist. I got something to say, and I'm going to find a way to say it no matter what. And there will always be those willing to help and willing to listen. Indie has redefined what it means to be a musician and a music business person in the 21st century. Discussion is always welcome. You can reach me at alan at alancross.ca anytime. My website is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day, including Christmas. And it also comes with a free newsletter that will deliver all kinds of cool stories directly to your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every weekday. I'm also around on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Google+. We should connect somehow. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.